Good evening. It's been said, if you didn't catch it, I'll say it again quickly. For the last 20 years, my family, including myself, have been missionaries in the country of Thailand. And Thailand is a country of about 70 million people. It's the size of Texas. Texas has about 20 million people. So size of Texas, but more than three times the population. 95% of the people in Thailand are Buddhist. Another 4% are Muslim. Less than 1% are Christian of any kind or denomination. I say all that to say I've never, I've never, I've never had the opportunity in all my years of Thailand to sit and have this many people sing songs that I believe are worthy of singing in heaven. There are some Christian songs that we probably won't sing in heaven. <laughs> I won't name them in case it's your favorite. Let the lower lights be burning. Um, <laughs> but I believe we'll sing Is He Worthy. I believe it's worthy of being sung in heaven. Wow, that's powerful. Are we on there? Good. Before we get started, you can turn your Bible, if you have what, your Bible, whatever form you have it in. I guess you don't have any electric, electronic form. So if you have this, a book Bible, you can turn in your book Bible to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. While you're turning there, just to make a couple introductions to tell you a little bit about me, Nate Beckman. Here is my, let's see if this says, is this on? There we are. There's my family. I have, there's my family, I have three kids, but I received this note on my pillow this morning as I woke up saying, dear dad, you're really great dad and all, you're super awesome when you're at home, but while we're at camp this week, would you mind uh, acting like you don't know us? <laughs> we love you and stuff like that, but we think it's best for all of us. Love you lots, we'll talk next week. <laughs> P.S. Can we have 20 bucks for snacks and food at camp? <laughs> so, my youngest daughter, so I have two kids and one more. You know about that, but you have more than, you have like four, and then one more. That's the surprise. So, I have my oldest is 18. She's a grad, she just graduated from high school. My son is 17, he'll be a senior, and the one that's excited, you'll see. If you look at her, she's gonna to talk to you as Naya. So I'm Nate, my wife, ma'am. My oldest daughter is Ryan Hudson, and the little cutie there, the surprise, is Naya. We're missionaries in Thailand. Things about me that you need to know right up front that are super important. I couldn't open the Bible without talking about the New York Yankees. I think it's important. I see as it's good for the first night when a speaker is speaking the first night to really get the crowd on his side, and I feel like I'm doing it. The New York Yankees, in fact, I was just at Yankee Stadium on July 3rd. They won, one of their only wins of the season, but I'm a New York Yankee. There are a couple things I really pay attention to, even overseas when we're in Thailand. I buy the MLB package, and I watch every Yankee game I can. I love the New York Yankees. I was born in New York, raised in Des Moines. How's that work? That's my parents' fault. I am a true New York Yankee. Not I'm not just a fan, I'm a follower. Then I'm also an Iowa Hawkeye fan. In fact, I'm... 
I feel like the crowd is with me. <laughs> I'm a true Hawkeye fan, and what I mean by true Hawkeye fan is I'm the true one that we can't wait until Kirk Ferentz's football team loses their first game so we don't get destroyed in a January bowl. That's true. I don't, ever, I don't ever put anything on Facebook, but when the Hawkeyes football team loses their first game of the season, I'll mark it down because that saves embarrassment at the Rose Bowl. 1982, 86, 91, 2015, 2016. But who's counting? <laughs> so I am, and now, so I'm, I'm a true Hawkeye fan, so again, to get the crowd on my side, I really hate Iowa State. I hate Iowa State. Yep. <laughs> And being the true, thank you, thank you. And being the true Hawkeye fan that I am, even when Iowa State is better than us, we still think we're better than you. Because that's the true Hawkeye fan. <laughs> even when we're wrong, we're right. That's a little bit about me. I, there are two really, two teams that I pay attention to, are, well, the Hawkeyes, I, I pay attention to all Hawkeye sports while we're overseas, and the New York Yankees. I had to just get that out of the way. Thank you very much. <laughs> Getting people on your side from the first night. It's going to go well. <laughs> Riding the brand. What I want to share with you tonight, there are really two verses that God, two places in Scripture that God used to get a hold of my life when I was 16 years old. As I said, I grew up in Des Moines, went to Gravy Park Baptist School back in the day, as Pastor Phil said this morning. I've had, I, when, in my youth, I, I had the quintessential Iowan experience. I've worked at Adventureland for a summer. Yes, I have. And during, not just during the fair, but all summer long, I, I worked at the Iowa State Fair for two summers all summer long. That is the quintessential. It doesn't get more Iowan than that. I've, I've done the nasty stuff at Adventureland, and I've scooped poop at the Iowa State Fair all summer long, every Monday, horse barns and pig barns after pig shows and horse shows, 4-H. I've had it. I'm an Iowa boy. In fact, I don't know I'll ever have opportunities to, when you're a missionary in Thailand, you don't really get people calling you up to speak at youth camp a whole lot. But if I, would, if I had this opportunity or something like this to speak at a camp, this would be the camp I speak because I am an Iowa guy. I grew up here, went to school in Des Moines, and I think Iowa really is. I've lived in Ohio since after I graduated from faith, but I still miss Iowa. Iowa's the place. What I want to talk to you tonight is very, very personal for me. I'm going to start, and everything's going to flow from this this week, and I'm just going to talk to you about how God got a hold of my life right here, not even Iowa, but as a, as a result of living in Iowa. I've always believed the right stuff. Going to a Christian school, being raised in a Christian family, there's never been a day in my life when I did not not only know who Jesus is, but believe that he was the Savior. Never. I remember when I was four years old, feeling guilty about sin, kneeling down at the couch with my dad, him praying and walking me through a sinner's prayer. There's never been a day in my life that I did not believe Jesus was the only way to heaven. I, and after that time when I kneeled at that couch when I was four years old and prayed that prayer with my dad, from that day on, I never ever doubted my salvation ever. And I went to Christian school, so I had Bible class, and then every week we would have chapel. And not only would we have chapel, at least twice a year we would have evangelists come in and tell us all the bad stuff we were doing. 
And all those times, I never, ever doubted anything about my salvation whatsoever, ever. But as I got older, and even in going to a Christian school, my crowd started to change, my lifestyle started to change. And when I was the end of my sophomore year of high school, my parents had been, they had started, they had become missionaries or started to raise their support when I was in seventh grade to go to the Central African Republic. And I honestly never thought we'd go because it was taking forever for my parents to raise that support. So I thought I was fine. End of my sophomore year, my, my parents came and said, we now have enough support. Next year, you're going to Central African Republic with us for your junior year of high school. And that was the thing that really started to blow my world apart because I did not want to be a missionary kid, number one, and I did not want to go to Africa. That was the summer after my sophomore year of high school that I worked at Adventureland. And every Tuesday, in those days, every Tuesday after Adventureland closed, the people who, all the people who worked in games would go bowling after Adventureland closed. And what it was was an opportunity for the kids who were of age to buy alcohol for the kids who were underage, and we'd all go in bowling together on a bowling alley in the east side of Des Moines. And that was the first time that I drank on a fairly regular basis. I still, in my mind, in my heart, I wasn't... I wasn't not thinking about spiritual things. I just thought at that time in my life, I just wasn't really ready to live for the Lord. But I still did not doubt anything about my relationship with God. That summer, I also started dating an unsaved girl who worked at Adventureland, and we worked together. And God rescued me from, frankly, from myself and some of the things that I would have done had I had the opportunity I was hoping through my rebellion that somehow my parents would say, you know what, you're not cut out to be a missionary kid, and frankly, if we take you to Africa, you'll, you'll embarrass us. So maybe you can just stay with your older sister who lives in Des Moines. I have two older sisters. They both lived in Des Moines at the time. That didn't happen. My parents made me go with them. I got to Africa. And my parents said if everything went well and I behaved and I didn't embarrass them, I didn't cause problems, didn't do anything like that, they would allow me to come home for my senior year of high school and I could go back to Grandview, live with my older sister and go to Grandview Park Baptist School and finish out my high school with the kids that I had grown up, since, grown up together with since first grade. So in my mind, I said, okay, I got this. We went in October. I can go home in May. That's about seven, eight months or so. It'll be like prison and I'll just get out and, I'll be, and, and that will be the past and it'll be the rest of my life. We got to Africa. I had to homeschool. And after being there for two months, I noticed a change in my health. Didn't know exactly what it was. I just kept getting weaker and weaker and weaker until I could, not, I could not drag myself out of bed. My mom was a nurse at the time. She thought I had malaria, so she was pumping me full of malaria pills. They weren't working. Finally, after this goes on for another couple months, I've lost a ton of weight. I can't keep food down. It's a mess. She takes me to this French doctor. He does a bunch, a bunch of tests, and he finds out that I actually have hepatitis. I'd eaten probably some contaminated meat somewhere, and it attacked my liver, and it caused me to have a liver disease. I'm a permanent defer for blood donation to this day. I cannot, because I've had hepatitis. But it was during that time, I could not drag myself out of bed 
that for the first time in my life, I actually opened up the Bible, having grown up in a Christian school, gone to, gone to church every Sunday, every Wednesday, was Mr. Awana guy when we were little kids. I could memorize all the verses. I knew all those verses. For the very first time, I opened up the Bible and read it to figure out what was up with me, because for the first time in my, le- my life, death was no longer a theory. It was no longer this thing that happens to old people. It was something that felt near to me. And God used two passages of Scripture to grab a hold of my life. This is one of them. I'm sure you know this. I'm sure if you've gone to Awana, you've memorized these verses. But I want to talk about tonight and the time that we have here together, simply this. When we're talking about writing for the brand, is the brand you're writing for, is what you claim to be the brand that you're writing for, is it really authentic? Are you really, truly writing for the brand? How would we know that? Questions we might ask ourselves. Are we truly, seriously Not just talking about it, not just know what it is, but are we truly, really, seriously writing for the brand? Based on 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, what questions would we ask ourselves? What could we work through in these two verses that would help us decide, help us to consider, help us to think about if we're truly willing to be honest with ourselves? Am I really, truly authentic in my ride for the brand? Here's what it says. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This passage right here is both super deep, yet super practical. How is it deep? How is it deep? In these two verses, we see the work of the triune God on behalf of us and for our salvation. Do you see the Trinity right there in these two verses? Can you see it? Do you not know that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit indwells us, whom you have from God, given by God the Father. How did that happen? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Bought with a price by whom? By Jesus. Right here. In these two verses, the work of the triune God on behalf of humanity. Yet it's super practical. How so? It's practical. As I said, these verses, in these verses, Paul gives us a clear, frankly, a really super clear explanation of not what we want and how we define Christianity, but what true Christianity is. What do you know about the church in Corinth? Church in Corinth was a church that was full of problems. It was a mess. In fact, in, these, in this chapter right here, the verses before, verses 19 and 20, Paul is talking about something that should never happen in any church. It's embarrassing, even in the world. Sexual immorality taking place within the church. And so Paul, in his criticism of these people in Corinth, these Christians in Corinth, saying, don't you even know? And here, he gives... What I believe is a very simple definition of what true Christianity is. What is true Christianity based on these verses? What does true Christianity look like? How would we use these verses to ask ourselves and determine and answer the question, am I really authentically writing for the brand? True Christianity, verse 19 there, true Christians are people in whom God lives. He says, or do you not know that you are the temple 
your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? True Christians are people in whom God is alive. So what what would be questions we might ask ourselves as we look at this? True Christians are people in whom God lives. Is God alive in you? I didn't ask you if you believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I didn't ask you if you believe that that he is the only way. I ask you, is he alive in you? How do I know if God lives in me? Quite frankly, friends, it is impossible for God to live in someone and that person not be changed. God cannot go and live anywhere and that place where he lives not be transformed, not be changed in any way. If that's the case where people say, this is where God lives, but there's no change whatsoever, friends, God doesn't live there. Wherever God goes, lives are changed. Galatians 5.22 talks about fruit that we don't produce, that's that's being produced by God when we are transformed by Christ. But the fruit of the Spirit, and then there's this long list. The things that come out of God's living, the things that come out of God's presence in our lives are what? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. That's the fruit that comes out of where God lives. True Christianity is Christians are people in whom God lives. When God is alive in someone, sooner or later, people are going to know about it. It is impossible for that not to have, for change not to take place wherever God goes. This lady here teaches me a lesson that I carry with me. In fact, my backpack, wherever my backpack goes, I have a super duper ugly tie that she gave me and asked me to wear when I preached one Sunday. I wore it because of her testimony. Her name is Suni. She was the housekeeper of the missionaries that I went and worked for my first time in Thailand. You see Suni, even in in the picture you can see a little bit of, you can see that one of her eyes doesn't open up quite as well as the other. It never quite opens fully. And right by that eye, there is a scar that runs down the side of her face and it curves toward her cheek, curves around her cheek toward her mouth. And that scar causes her not to be able to open her mouth or her eye completely. And it also causes her to smile crookedly. She cannot smile a complete smile. And the story of that scar is a story that changed Suni's life and it's a story that stays with me forever. Before Suni came to know the Lord as her Savior, she was married to a man, and she and her husband were both drunkards. And when they would get drunk, they'd fight. They'd be abusive. One night they get drunk, that's not new. But that particular night, they both got drunk, they start hitting each other, and her husband says to her, if you touch me again, I'm going to kill you. In her drunken stupor, she smacked him again. He went into the kitchen, got a knife, and sla- he went to try to kill her. He swung that knife and tried to kill her. He caught her face. She ran into the house, knowing that he was serious about killing her. She collapses in the street. People leave her there through the rest of the night. In the morning, as the sun comes up, 
walk, pastors by, see this lady lying in the street bleeding. They touch her, realize she's still alive. They call an ambulance. She goes to the hospital. She spent more than a month in a hospital because they had to surgically repair her, her whole face. She had to go through extensive physical therapy just to learn how to blink again and how to use the smile, that, the muscles on the side of her face. Her physical therapist is a good friend of ours and is a Christian. And while, while our friend was teaching Suni how to open her eye again, how to smile again, she was telling her of what Christ could do for her if she would open up her heart and trust Christ as her Savior. He could forgive her sins and change her life. Over the period of that month, God changed Suni's heart and she accepted Christ. She went home. Her husband wasn't there. He had been arrested for trying to kill his wife. At her first opportunity, she found out where in what jail he was located, went to that jail. Her husband was shocked as could be to see her, and he says, what are you doing here? And she simply said, I found Christ. Christ has forgiven me, and I forgive you. Turn to Christ. Her, her husband's family upon hearing of her witnessing to this man in prison, as well as him being from a different area of Thailand, asked for him to be moved, and he was moved to a different prison far away, and she was not able to ever see him or talk to him about Christ again. But no matter what country you're in, no matter what life you've lived, when God comes to live in someone, it is impossible for that someone not to be changed in some way. This guy right here, Gunn, 10 years ago, he was saved in our prison ministry. While he was saved in that prison ministry, you never know what really is going to take place when people make professions of faith in prison. We've had lots of guys do that over the years, and as soon as they get out of prison, we never, ever see them again. But Gunn was different. After a few months of Gunn making his profession of faith, some of his friends came to me and they said, Pastor Nathan, I really don't know what's going on with Gunn. He's different. He doesn't curse like he used to. He doesn't hang out and he doesn't tell the stories that we used to sit in the cell and talk about together. Wow. So I said, Gunn, what's going on? And he said, once I, once I asked Jesus to forgive me, I went back to my room that day, and the guys were got in the group, and we were talking about stuff we shouldn't talk about, and we started to swear, and I, and I swore, and I felt this rottenness inside of me. It felt horrible. I didn't know what to do with myself. He literally said, I went off in the corner, and I cried. And I said, what in the world happened to me? And he said, I realized I can't do that anymore because it makes me feel sick. Now, 10 years later, Gunn is just finishing up his internship, and he's finishing Bible college, hopefully going to be a pastor of our church that we're planning in Bangkok. Because when God lives somewhere, that somewhere is changed. Would the God of heaven, the creator of the universe, the God of whom we sing on our songs, would he go live somewhere and not change it at all? Gunn and Sunni would say, absolutely not. True Christians are people in whom God lives. What else? 
True Christians are people who know they are not their own anymore. What's the verse say? Whom you have from God (laughs) couldn't be more clear than the end of verse 19. You are not your own. Is there any ambiguity in that? It wouldn't seem so. (laughs) But the day in which we live, everything is up for discussion. Everything can be redefined. So when you're not your own anymore, "Ah, it's not really not your own. It's just maybe not, not, you know, your own. Huh? You are not your own. Let me ask you this. Who owns you right now? How do I know if I'm owned by God? How would I know that? Let me ask you this. What is the basis for your decision-making every day? Who makes the decisions in your life about what you think, about what you're going to wear, about how you're going to display yourself, about your style, about what you like, about what you love? Does God really care about that stuff? If he owns us, it would seem so. Or let me ask you this. This is something as, as I was dealing with hepatitis and I'm reading the Bible and I'm thinking these things through. Right here. When you do wrong, who are you scared of? As I was thinking through this, sick in my bed in Central African Republic as a 16-year-old guy, I was thinking through the lying that I had done to my parents, the lies I had told my parents just a few months before so that I could use my dad's car so that I could drive to that bowling alley on Tuesday night and do stuff with my friends at that bowling alley in the east side of Des Moines and then drive home about one o'clock in the morning. The lies I had to tell my dad so that I could do that because if he found out the truth, there was no way I was ever going. And in that moment, as I thought through those lies and I thought, who were you scared of? Young people, in the sins of my youth, I was never scared of God. I was only scared of my dad. When you do wrong, who are you scared of? I think of Romans chapter 14, verses 7 through 9, that says it this way. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. If I'm alive, if I, if I die, who's in charge if I'm a true Christian? It's all God. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be what? Lord, both of the dead and the living. How about James chapter 4, verses 13 and following? It says this, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go and do such and such a town, spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist, you're a mist that appears for a little time and then it vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. This is James. James's words are super amazing. Why are James's words so amazing? If we think about who was James, this guy saying this, I don't control any part of my life. I'm not saying I'm going to this town tomorrow. I'm going to go to that town tomorrow. I'm going to do this business. I'm going to, because it's all based on God and whatever God wants because our life is short. Who's James? You remember who James was? Do you remember who he used to be? Do you remember the way he used to think? Who's James? 
This is the James who is the brother of who? Jesus. And not that long ago, James used to think this. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. What, was, what were James and the other half-siblings of Jesus saying at one point in their lives? Hey, Jesus, why don't you show us some, if this is really, if you really, you really are who you say you are, show us some stuff. Because no one doesn't show it if they're really the one who comes. Show us. Because why? They themselves didn't believe it themselves yet. And now we have James in his own book writing, don't even say I'm going here, going there, because it's all based on God. And then what does he say? What's James saying now? James 1.1. This, the former unbeliever, the half-brother of Jesus that said, show this because we don't really believe you. James, a servant, or in the original Greek, doulos, which means slave. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. There's a transformation that took place in James's life. He was an unbeliever, and he half-mockingly says to Jesus, show us if you're really that guy. And now James says what? About his half-brother. He owns me. I will not even go to that town without the permission, direction from the one who is my half-brother. I am his. He owns me. If we are no longer our own, how should that affect the decisions we make every day? Who owns you? True Christians are people in whom God is alive. True Christians are people who know they are not their own anymore. What else is there at the, very, at the next verse? True Christians are people who have been bought. True Christians are people who have been bought. What was the price? When, when these verses talk about you were bought with a price, what was that price? Acts 20, 28 tells us, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were, you were ransomed from futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Revelation 5, 9, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. How do I know if I have ever been bought? I just said, these verses are pretty clear. You were bought with a price. How do we know if we have been bought? Let me ask you this way. Are you ever confused if you've bought something in a store? You're walking out with something in your hand. You ever confused about whether you bought it or not? 
Not much. Let me ask it a different way. Is God ever confused about whom he has bought and whom he hasn't? We might get confused because we look at the outside. That's all we can do. We can't see inside of people's hearts. We look at the outside and say, that guy looks like a Christian. That guy comes to church. He looks just as good as me, maybe better. We all got our problems. He looks saved. Is God ever confused about who is his and who isn't? I don't think so. I don't think God, is that guy really saved? Man, last week he looked pretty saved. Has there ever been a time in your life when that buying and selling transaction took place between you and God? Has there ever been that time in your life where you consciously knew what you were doing and you gave your life to Christ? You traded his blood, his sacrifice for your sin, and you got his righteousness in return. Has that ever happened? Or have you just grown up in church and you've always believed it and your parents are good and everything's fine and everything looks good? Have you ever given your life to Christ? As we sit and think through these verses, verses that you know, I'm sure, verses you've probably memorized, can we take a moment, just a moment, and be really honest with ourselves and ask ourselves this question? Do these verses describe me, my Christian experience? Or if we're going to ask it maybe in the way that we're talking about in the, according to the theme of the camp, am I really writing for the band? Or am I really, truly, what? Saved. So there I was, I was 16 years old, junior in high school, having grown up in a Christian school all, all my life, gone to church all my life, Mr. Owana guy, since I was a little guy, missionary kid, pastor's kid in Africa, sick as a dog, and for the first time, I was honest with myself. And as I study the word of God, for the first time by myself, I look at this and i like, what was my problem? I knew every answer out there. I've never not believed it. In fact, I never doubted that I was saved until I actually opened up the Bible and really took it seriously for the first time. And I realized my problem isn't that I, I need to dedicate my life to the Lord. In fact, the truth is, I thought my problem a couple months before that, I thought my problem was I just had never dedicated my life to the Lord because I didn't come to camp those years during high school. I heard about my friend. I never did that. So I actually dedicated my life to the Lord, thinking that was my problem. And then I start reading the Bible carefully, and I realize that's not my problem. My problem is I'm just not saved. As I realized that I wasn't saved, I was scared to death to go to sleep. Scared to death. This is true. One night, three o'clock in the morning, I can't, I can't sleep. 
I'm in misery because I'm afraid that if I go to sleep, I might die. And if I die, I know I'm not going to heaven because I'm not saved. It doesn't matter how much information I had. I knew I wasn't saved. Christ didn't live in me. God didn't live in me. He didn't own me. I knew at that point I had never traded my life for Christ's. So at 3 o'clock in the morning, I go into my dad's room, scare the snot out of him, wake him up. Ah, what's going on? Robber, robber. No, it's just me. And I said, he's like, what in the world could possibly be wrong? I'm like, Dad, I cannot sleep, and I don't think I'm saved. My dad said, let's talk. So we talk, and he's like, well, why don't you pray about it one day? Okay, fine. Go through the next day. Try to go to bed again the next night. I cannot sleep. Three o'clock in the morning again. There's no lie. Three o'clock in the morning, I go in again. I'm like, Dad, I cannot sleep. This is the decision that has to happen right now. So there I was, 16 years old, having come to Clear Lake. I a regular Baptist camp as a youngster. Having gone to Grandview Park Baptist School, growing up in a Christian family, knowing all the answers. Never not believing it. Never doubting anything about my salvation until I actually stopped and was honest with myself for just a second. And I realized I wasn't saved. We're here. I think I'm probably here with a bunch of people who are growing up in very similar situation as I. Christian family, go to church all the time. Some of you probably go to Christian school, some maybe homeschool and Christian material. And there's probably many here. There's never been a day where you didn't believe. But I want to I I ask you, has there been a day when you truly know that you accepted Christ and it was real and life was different because God came to live inside of you? I guess what I'm asking is, is it possible that there may be someone, some Iowa kid like Nate Beckman, who's grown up the same way? And maybe you're thinking and you know things aren't the greatest like they should be. Your spiritual life isn't what it should be. Maybe you think it's just maybe an issue of dedication or just maybe I just need some time. Might I ask you, could it be that you're just not saved? And the decision that really needs to be made is that you give your life to Christ. Is there someone here like me? And what you really need is Christ tonight. That's working in your heart right now. Don't fight that. Let's close our eyes. Bow our heads, if you will. In the quietness of this moment, while no one's looking around, counselors are watching carefully because they want to be of help and of service. In the quietness of this moment right here, I just simply want to ask the question, is there someone here tonight who, as you've listened to me tell my story, it sounds like your life. Is there someone here that just says, that sounds like me? 
And maybe my real problem is I just need to be saved. Is there anyone like that? If you're here today and that's you, you could raise your hand. Anyone? I see a hand. If you had it up and put it back down, thank you. Thank you. Are there others who you say, I just know I need Christ? Thank you. You can put your hand down. Thank you. Counselors are watching. They'll have the, you'll have an opportunity. You guys, in the quietness, of the, is there anyone else that you say, I know I need Christ? That, the real problem, the real issue is I, I just need to give my life to Christ. Anyone else? You can put your hand back down. Thank you. Young people, I'm not going to ask you to get up and walk to the back. I'm not going to get up or ask you to walk to the front. I'm going to ask you to spend time with your counselor. Your counselors have seen and talk. Don't let this important moment pass if this is what you need. And you'll never regret it. Lord, be with us even now, I pray. Do not let Satan take this moment, confuse it, make it different than what you'd want right now. Save souls even tonight. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.